Do not be alarmed. The sirens you are about to hear are not real. Hey there, I'm Holly, the host of this weekly podcast, All Available Units Respond, about disasters and catastrophes. I've moved the release day for new episodes to Friday instead of on Thursdays. Last week, I brought you the story of the Station Nightclub fire, and in episode one, I told you the story of the Big Bayou Cannot Rail accident. Please go back and listen to episodes one and two if you haven't yet. I also want you to check out my other podcast, Tell Me a True Crime Story. It's a weekly podcast too, and so far it has eight episodes. New episodes come out every Tuesday. Thank you for being here and spending some of your day with me. I truly appreciate you. I hope that you and your family are happy, healthy, and safe. Big hugs to all of you. This is Episode 3, The Hyatt Regency Hotel Tragedy. Many of the details in this story are gruesome, gut-wrenching, and heart-wrenching. Do not listen to this episode in the presence of children. Dr. Joseph F. Wackerly had just finished a workout after his 12-hour shift at Baptist Memorial Hospital. He was tired and wet with sweat when he received a phone call that something bad had happened at the Hyatt. Dr. Wackerly had previously been the medical director for Kansas City, Missouri for 10 years, and the city's current medical director was unavailable that evening, so Dr. Wackerly got the call instead. He was one of the first responders on the scene. He'd responded to other disasters, but when he arrived in the chaos and carnage of the Hyatt lobby, the scene he'd walked into shocked him. There were no lights, save for the hanging electrical wires that were arcing and sparking, and water was flowing from busted pipes. According to a story on NPR.org by Joe Hernandez, Dr. Wackerly said, quote, I shut my eyes for a moment and said, gee whiz, what am I doing here? And said a little prayer and prayed that I could do the best I can and then got on with it. End quote. For the next roughly 12 hours, Dr. Wackerly oversaw rescue triage operations for the survivors of the walkway collapse at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri on July 17, 1981. The Hyatt Regency Hotel opened in the Crown Center District in Kansas City, Missouri in 1980. The Crown Center District is like a city within a city. According to crowncenter.com, the Crown Center District, located on the southeast side of Kansas City, is a mixed-use redevelopment. An 85-acre shopping, hotel, and entertainment district that sees over 5 million visitors each year. CrownCenter.com states, quote, 
In the early 1960s, the area where Crown Center sits was filled with rutted parking lots, abandoned warehouses, and a limestone hill cluttered with signs, end quote. The Crown Center District first opened in 1971 with the completion of the first five buildings. It now contains two world-class hotels, a Hallmark Headquarters and Visitor Center, a six-acre residential condo community, Lego Land Discovery Center, Sea Life Aquarium, an ice skating rink, and over 50 unique shops, restaurants, theaters, and experiences. An elevated corridor called, quote-unquote, The Link, connects the center to Union Station, a reconstructed train station that includes a science museum, exhibits, and an Amtrak station. Crown Center got its name for the crown in the Hallmark Cards logo. Joyce Hall, founder of Hallmark Cards, and his son, Donald Hall, developed the Crown Center Redevelopment Corporation, the real estate development subsidiary of the Hallmark Corporation. Crown Center Redevelopment Corporation manages the 85-acre Crown Center District. I always like to set the scene for you guys so you can get a feel for where our story takes place. That was a description of the Crown Center District where the Hyatt Regency Hotel was built. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the hotel itself, its physical features, and a little bit of its history. The Hyatt Regency still stands today, but is now called Sheraton Kansas City Hotel at Crown Center. It's located at McGee Street and East Pershing Road. The hotel is 40 stories and is Kansas City's third tallest building. When the hotel opened in 1980, it had a revolving rooftop restaurant called Skies. The restaurant closed in 2011 when the hotel changed hands. It reopened as a private club called the Sheraton Club Lounge. On opening day of the Hyatt Regency in 1980, Donald Hall, president of Hallmark Cards Incorporated, and J. Patrick Foley, president of Hyatt Hotels Corporation, presided over dedication ceremonies. The 733-room hotel officially opened on July 1, 1980, but was not totally finished at that time. The uppermost two guest floors and rooftop restaurant were set to open later that summer. The fancy lobby had three 120-foot suspended walkways, or skywalks, each weighing 36 tons, spanning the atrium that connected the north and south ends of the lobby. They were staggered, meaning that the fourth floor skywalk hung 30 feet directly above the second floor skywalk on the lobby's west side. The third floor skywalk was offset from the other two on the lobby's east side. Now we're going to fast forward to one year later. Michael Mahoney, then feature reporter of KMBC 9 News, was in the Hyatt Regency Hotel's lobby on the evening of July 17, 1981. He and a colleague, then photojournalist for KMBC 9 News, Dave Forstate, were on assignment covering the hotel's tea dance event for the Lifestyle Beat. 
Mahoney explained in an article on KMBC.com that the tradition at that time in Hyatt Hotels was to develop a lobby with the quote-unquote JC factor. This meant that when you walked into one, you went, quote, Jesus Christ, end quote. I'm sure the architects felt that the Skywalk's design contributed to the wow factor of the lobby atrium area because they were made to look as if they were floating. The Hyatt Regency Hotel in Kansas City had been hosting tea dances in its lobby from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. on Friday evenings since the end of May that year, and they were very popular. It was said to be a great way to kick off the weekend. You could go check out the swanky new hotel in the Crown Center District and go to drink and dance at their tea dance. Hyatt Hotels in 10 other cities around the country were hosting tea dances too, and they were all pretty much run the same way. Admission was free, the drinks were inexpensive, there were balloons and live big band music. People came out to dance the Jitterbug, Foxtrot, Roomba, and Waltz. Up to approximately 2,500 people were in the Grand Lobby at the Hyatt Regency Hotel at 7 p.m. on Friday, July 17, 1981. About 50 to 150 people were on the second, third, and fourth floor skywalks, either dancing or just taking advantage of their great bird's-eye view, observing all of the goings-on below them. There were people drinking at the bar, the orchestra was playing, hundreds of people were dancing and milling about. At 7.05 p.m., a swing dance contest had just gotten underway. Participants in the contest had numbers pinned to the backs of their shirts. The band was said to be playing Satin Doll by Duke Ellington. Then suddenly, there were some loud, strange sounds. Survivors of the disaster later described the sounds as a couple of loud pops. Others described them as cracking sounds. Cement ripped from the wall. In a split second, the fourth floor walkway collapsed onto the second floor walkway that was directly below it, and they both crashed to the atrium floor. People that had been on the second floor walkway were crushed, sandwiched between the second floor walkway and the fourth floor walkway that had just fallen on them. The third floor walkway that was offset from the other two and independently hung did not fall. People underneath the second and fourth floor walkways on the floor level just disappeared, crushed under 72 tons, which was the massive combined weight of the two walkways that were constructed of concrete, steel, and glass. When the two walkways hit the floor, their glass exploded and shards of glass flew in every direction, cutting people over 100 feet away from where the walkways landed. The music had stopped. A white dust filled the air. Immediately following the collapse, survivors described there being about three seconds of total, eerie silence. Then all hell broke loose. People started screaming, crying, moaning, groaning, and praying. 
Limbs without bodies attached to them were sticking out from the wreckage, and some bodies lie in halves. Survivors were frantically digging through the rubble with bare hands to try and free those that were trapped beneath wreckage and debris. A water line was severed in the collapse. People were being sprayed with water, and the water was rising. The lobby was filling with water and blood. Survivors trapped in rubble and wreckage were trying to hold their heads up out of the water. Mark Williams was one of those people. Water flowed across his head, and he was starting to breathe in water. He was afraid he might drown. At almost 8 p.m., after 48 minutes, a hotel engineer was finally able to cut the water supply. At some point, Mark Williams heard a young girl trapped somewhere near him in the wreckage. She was saying Catholic prayers. They talked and said some prayers together. He said she asked where her father was. Mark Williams lied to comfort her and told her that he'd seen her father and that he'd gotten out safely and he was okay. Not long after that, the little girl fell silent. He later found out she was 11-year-old Pam Coffey, the youngest person to die that night. Her body had been nearly cut in half in the collapse. A triage center was started in a hallway. The injured were whisked away in helicopters, ambulances, taxi cabs, and private vehicles and transported to hospitals in the area, including Trinity Lutheran, St. Mary's, North Kansas City Memorial, Truman Medical Center, and St. Luke's. Reverend Billy Graham was in town for a conference at that time, and he visited survivors in the hospital. A priest walked among the dying victims and dead bodies, carrying a Bible, delivering last rites, and blessing and absolving the bodies, regardless of faith. At the time, the priest had been too busy to identify himself, but did say, Quote, it's impossible to know who they are or what they are, end quote. With so many injured people, there was a great need for blood. Thankfully, hundreds of donors waited in line for hours to give. The highway patrol was enlisted to pick up supplies of blood from rural hospitals and deliver it to the hospitals treating the victims. Concrete cutting saws and jackhammers were used to cut and break through concrete slabs to try and reach trapped people. Chainsaws being used by firefighters to hack through steel I-beams caused sparks to fly and small fires to erupt. In places where people were trapped but still alive, rescuers pumped oxygen to them through small tubes. When it was possible, emergency responders hooked trapped and suffering victims up to IVs and administered morphine. Mark Williams was pinned in a splits position. This is because seconds before the skywalks fell, when he heard a snapping sound, he spread his legs to run. Both of his legs were pulled from their sockets. He became trapped in an 18-inch pocket with his left foot wedged near his right ear. Later on, well after midnight, Mark Williams was still trapped under the collapsed concrete walkways. Rescuers were using jackhammers to break apart the thick slabs of concrete. They started jackhammering right above where he was trapped. The first time, the jackhammer went between his chest and his arm. They pulled the jackhammer back out. 
He yelled at them, but apparently they could not hear him. The second time the jackhammer came down, it went between his legs. Then they pulled it back out again. Mark Williams was yelling and cussing, but still the jackhammer came down again, and this time it went between his right arm and his body. Finally, nine hours after his terrifying ordeal first started, at four o'clock a.m., Mark Williams was pulled out of the wreckage. He was the last person to be found alive. He was in the hospital for the next two months. His kidneys shut down and he had to go on dialysis. He lost feeling in his leg. It turned black and swelled severely. Incisions were made in his leg to relieve the pressure. He went through physical therapy and at first got around in a wheelchair. Eventually, he was able to walk with crutches, then a cane. He regained feeling in his leg and was finally able to walk again, but with a limp. Around 4 a.m. on July 18, 1981, the rescue mission had turned into a recovery mission. A conference room and parking structure became makeshift morgues. According to KMBC.com, most of the successful rescues that happened had occurred within the first hour of the collapse. The entrance doors to the hotel were removed so that heavy equipment could enter and attempt to lift the tons of wreckage, but that equipment failed. Cranes were needed to hoist enormous pieces of wreckage in order to look for more survivors. Three large cranes were brought in from a nearby construction site. Twelve hours after the collapse, at 7.15 a.m. the next morning, exhausted rescuers lifted the final slab with one of the cranes. Underneath, they found 31 more bodies crushed to death. Chief Physician at the Collapse, Dr. Joseph F. Wackerly, who directed the search and rescue efforts, described some of the on-the-spot, life-altering decisions he had to make that night. He had few resources at his disposal. Initially, there had been no morphine to ease people's suffering. Four decades after the collapse, Dr. Weckerly explained the dire circumstances in a KMBC.com news article. Quote, There were times when I looked at them and said, I can't get you out. I can't help you. You're going to die. Make your peace with God. And I moved on. I had to dismember some bodies to get to other bodies, to get some live people out. I had to let a few people die in order that others might live who were going to die no matter what I did. End quote. One victim, the bartender that night, had his legs pinned by steel beams. Dr. Wackerly said to him, quote, Your leg is not salvageable. Even if we could get it off you, I don't think we can get you out, and you're not going to live otherwise. End quote. At first, the bartender hesitated in giving Dr. Wackerly permission to remove his leg, but finally relented. His leg was amputated with a chainsaw, but he did not survive. Dr. Wackerly later said of the toll the tragedy took on him, quote, It took me six months personally and professionally to get a handle on this, end quote. First responders witnessed so many horrifying sights that night. 
the first Kansas City police officer to respond to the scene, Vince Ortega, said to KMBC.com, quote, There was nothing that prepared any of us for what was in there and how we had to deal with it later. I remember one of my buddies trying to help this man, and I was trying to help this man. As he was helping, he was pulling and pulled his arm off. He just dropped it and just ran out of there. And I remember there was a lot of officers, paramedics, firemen that left their careers after that. Mentally, they couldn't process it, end quote. In the end, 114 people were killed, among them 18 pairs of husbands and wives, and 216 people were injured. One woman, Sally Firestone, the most severely injured survivor, became a C4 quadriplegic. Below her shoulders, she has no feeling or movement, and she doesn't remember anything from the first 10 days or so following the catastrophe. So how in the heck could this possibly happen and who was to blame? An investigation began that lasted for many months. The technical details surrounding the how and why of the collapse can be complex for lay people to understand, but in my research I found some news articles that broke down the details of the cause of the collapse into simpler terms. They explained that during the construction of the hotel, the original design of the walkways was changed. The original design drawings called for the second floor and fourth floor walkways to be suspended from the ceiling from a single set of support rods. These support rods would have been attached to the roof framing and would have passed through the fourth floor beams and on through the second floor beams. Under that design, each box beam would have transferred its own load directly into the hanger rods. That design was approved by the Kansas City Codes Administration Office. However, the design was changed so that separate rods hung the second floor walkway from the fourth floor walkway. The change was probably made to save time and money. This new design required the fourth floor walkway to bear its own weight and the weight of the second floor walkway which hung from it. On July 17, 1981, the fourth floor support rod connections could no longer support the weight of both walkways and the people that were on them. Failure occurred at one of the fourth floor box beam hanger rod connections, possibly the middle fourth floor box beam, based on studies of the walkway debris. Progressive failure of the other connections occurred as the load from the failed connection was distributed to the other connections causing the walkways to collapse. A major conclusion in the report on the investigation issued by the National Bureau of Standards, now called National Institute of Standards and Technology, was that critical connections in the walkways were capable of supporting less than one-third of the load expected to be carried by a connection designed under the Kansas City-Missouri Building Code. An online article by licensed architect and attorney Dale R. Ellickson did a great job describing the economic climate in which the hotel was constructed and how that may have contributed to the decisions, errors, and oversights that permitted this catastrophe to happen. For this portion 
I'm going to read some excerpts from Dale R. Ellickson's August 25th, 2018 blog post called Tea Dance on the website architects-tales.com. Quote, the design and construction of the Hyatt occurred during a time of high unemployment, rampant inflation, and double-digit bank interest rates. Time is money was an appropriate theme for the fast-track process that was mandated for the project. On fast-track projects, the design professionals have to be well-seasoned so as to anticipate problems, make educated assumptions, and always cross-check. Sometimes they rely upon the general contractor's fabricators to complete the design process with details contained in the shop drawings. The fabricator had subcontracted the shop drawings to an outside detailer who assumed that someone else had already done the engineering calculations. Thus, contrary to normal practices where engineers check each other's calculations and where fabricators get explicit instructions from the engineers, there were none. The connections were never analyzed using professional engineering judgment. The normal checks and balances used to prevent human error were ignored. End quote. Structural engineer and engineer of record who put his seal on the plans, Jack Gillum, and project engineer in charge of the project day to day, Daniel Duncan, were both charged with gross negligence and lost their licenses to practice professional engineering in the state of Missouri. Jack Gillum was president of the engineering company GCE International Incorporated at the time of the collapse. GCE's license was also revoked. The engineering firm was liquidated as a result of the collapse and its assets were sold to another firm. Gillum's investors lost more than $1 million and he faced more than $200,000 in unpaid legal bills. Millions of dollars were paid out in civil suits and in a class action settlement to 24 members who were surviving victims and victims' family members. Hallmark also agreed to pay a minimum of $6.5 million to various Kansas City charities over the next four years. Two and a half months after the collapse, the Hyatt's lobby had been redesigned and renovated. Where the skywalks had been was replaced with a second-floor terrace. The hotel unceremoniously reopened on October 1, 1981. 2021 marked the 40-year anniversary of the collapse, and dozens of people gathered at the Skywalk Memorial to reflect on the many lives lost on July 17, 1981, and the many more lives that were affected by the tragedy. The memorial was first completed and dedicated in 2015. The metal sculpture depicts dancers in the air, attached to a steel column that has the names of all those who lost their lives in the collapse etched in it. The memorial stands in the shadow of the former Hyatt Regency Hotel, now called the Sheraton Kansas City at Crown Center. Thank you so much for being here and listening to my new podcast, All Available Units Respond. I really and truly appreciate it. I also have another podcast I want you to check out. It's called Tell Me a True Crime Story. Please subscribe to both of these podcasts so you won't miss any episodes. And tune in next week right here for episode four of All Available Units Respond. Hugs to all of you. Bye-bye.